The gospel reading today is from John 1, 29 through 34. It's on page 1053, if you want to follow along. It's also the sermon text for today. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He who on him you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Well, as we study today's passage, this is uh, the fifth sermon in chapter 1 of John. Now, like I said before, they're not all going to go at this pace, each chapter, but chapter 1 has uh, a lot of depth and, and a, lot to, a lot of riches for us to, to mine. So we're spending our, our fifth sermon here today in uh, these verses 29 through 34, as Andrea just read. Uh, as we see this, as we study this passage, we see that John the Baptist introduced, he's going to introduce Jesus with a title that will pretty much be the focus of this sermon. And we'll see that unfold as we get into the text, but let's take some time to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. I thank you that for the gathering of your saints. Um, I thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for the good news that was proclaimed in the wilderness. And Lord, may that good news be ours. Bless us, shape us. And Father, move us to action by your word and by your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, there was an early movie in the early 90s called Grand Canyon. Uh, I, I was reminded of this movie as I was looking at a, a book by Cornelius Plantinga on sin. And uh, he talks about this movie called Grand Canyon. And I actually saw this movie before I read the book. It was interesting. Um, or at least saw part of it. But he begins with a scene with an attorney who's driving home from work and he gets caught in a traffic jam. And as he's getting impatient in this traffic jam, he decides to take a detour off the freeway. And as he's driving, it's after, it's, it's, it's getting late and he's driving through a town and, and pretty soon he's getting into a place he doesn't know and it's getting darker and he's starting to see board up buildings and it just doesn't look like a friendly place. And as you would guess, his car breaks down. And as his car breaks down, it's the early 90s, he had to go find a phone booth to call for a tow truck. So he does that. He calls for a tow truck, and after he's done calling for the tow truck, he's going back to his car, and he gets met by a group of teenagers who don't have good in mind, and they start harassing him and threatening him with bodily harm. And just as things get heated, the tow truck driver drives up. And the tow truck driver wants to defuse the situation, so he starts getting to work and, and, and hooking up the car, and, and these guys aren't letting up. So the tow truck driver intercedes, and he gets in there, and, and he gets the leader of the gang, and he calls him to the side. And he says this to him. He says, man, 
the world ain't supposed to work like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything's supposed to be different than what it is here. And this, this illustration is used because it's a very accurate description of our world, isn't it? A very accurate description of how probably, all, I would say, all of us feel when we go into the world at different degrees. Our world, our community, our culture, and yes, even our families and our church. We all live with an idea of what things are supposed to be like and what's right and what's wrong. Christian and non-Christian alike would agree with that tow truck driver that things aren't what they're supposed to be, nor have they ever been. Now, I use that illustration because this, this is the world in which we find John the Baptist introducing Jesus, a world that's been not the way it's supposed to be ever since the fall. All the way back in Genesis 3, if you're new to the Bible, back in Genesis 3, at the very beginning, after Adam and Eve were created, they experienced life in the garden. They experienced this, this beautiful fellowship with the Creator God. In the beautiful garden that was made, in perfection. But then, there was a disruption in that fellowship, wasn't there? What we call the fall. There was rebellion against God. There was disobedience, and God could not be in the presence of this disobedience, in the, in the presence of rebellion. And so he cast them out. He cast them out into the wilderness. Genesis 3, 17, 18 has God saying this, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. From the lush garden to the barren wilderness. This wilderness theme continues throughout the biblical story. If you're familiar with the biblical story, the wilderness theme is all throughout, and we see it in the Gospels as well. We see Israel's rebellion, Israel wandering in the wilderness because they're rebelling against God, and they are not enter, able to enter into the promised land. So they stay in the wilderness. We see the prophecies of judgment that continue through biblical history, and now during the time of Jesus, we see them in a world of oppression, poverty, disease, and deep thirst for living water in a parched land. And here's a voice crying out in the wilderness that we saw John the Baptist crying out in the wilderness, make way, make a road for the Lord, he's coming. There's a pastor named uh, Nick Batsig in an article he wrote about the wilderness. He says, the wilderness throughout scripture denotes everything painful and trying with all the miseries of this fallen world. Whether it was the Israelites being bitten by poison serpents or thirsting from lack of water, these served as reminders of sin and the misery that Adam brought into the world. And all of us, from the moment we take our first breath as human beings. We become subject to the dysfunctions, brokenness, and sin of the world. We're born into a world, the very day we're born, we're born into a world that threatens to undo us through sickness, poverty, suffering, and death. And I don't believe there's anyone from any faith or absence of faith who would deny the assessment of human life. I don't mean to sound so dark and dingy about it, but, but we know 
we know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That the shalom, that peace that we long for seems so out of reach. Life in the corrupted wilderness is a life without that shalom, without that peace. And this wilderness language, we see these wilderness themes in this first chapter of John. In John uh, 14, well, it says that, that um, Jesus came or the word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Chris preached a few weeks ago, that is wilderness language. That is language of, of God making his presence known in the wilderness. He gave the Israelites instructions to build a tabernacle. The word for tabernacle is the same word used for when Jesus came and dwelt. He tabernacled among us. He was making his presence. He was bringing God's presence in the midst of a wilderness generation, another wilderness generation. In this first chapter, John introduces Jesus in his power and his divinity. He is God. He was the word from the beginning, the creator of all things, telling the reader that this is no ordinary human being, that he became flesh, but no ordinary human being at all. This was God in the flesh. But it's just the beginning. Notice the trajectory of his introduction. He starts off with him way up here, and then he brings him down to earth, and he says, but that's not all. Jesus didn't just come to be born to be a human being. He didn't come just to live a perfect life, although those were all great things. But that was not why he came. There was a deeper, grander purpose to his coming. And in today's passage, we see John the Baptist introducing this ministry of Jesus and exactly what he came to do. It's the one thing to know he's God. It's another thing to know that he became human. But then the reader may ask, why did this all happen? To what end did he become human? And that's what we're going to see in this short passage today. So we're going to see the how, the why, and the so what of Jesus' ministry. The how, the why, and the so what of Jesus' ministry. So let's look, verse 29. Like I said, this is going to take up most of the sermon. So um, the next day, he, Jesus, um, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what's interesting is um, I just assumed that everybody knew what the Lamb of God was. When, when, when John the Baptist said this, that we all know to exactly what he was referring. But every commentator, there's not one commentator I did not read that, that disagreed with this. Every commentator agreed that the readers back then would not have known exactly what he was talking about when he said the Lamb of God. And that was puzzling. Why would he say something so cryptic? Why would he give a title to Jesus that's so cryptic? For instance, we think that the, my, my mind immediately goes to Exodus 12 for the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and the blood was put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass, pass by the Israelites. Some would say that, that perhaps this was Abraham's provision by God when he was sacrificing Isaac. God provided that sacrifice, that ram in the thicket. And he provided, yes, it was a ram, but, but perhaps it was, some commentator said, this is what it's alluding to. Some say with all of the Isaiah language, John is using a lot of quotations from, from Isaiah and a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of themes from Isaiah. We already saw this with with the fact that, that uh, we'll see this with the Spirit of God being on the servant. 
And we saw it with the voice crying out in the wilderness from Isaiah. And so perhaps he's talking about Isaiah's suffering servant that was just beautifully read by George. And a lot of them feel that that could be what it was. But the point here is that John appears to be using something with double meaning, with more meanings than just one. That to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God is not just pointing to one application, but to many applications. Yes, he was a sacrificial lamb. Yes, he was a suffering servant. But the thing is, when they heard the Lamb of God, one thing that there was no doubt about was that this was a sacrifice, this was sacrificial language. And then when they heard this is a lamb provided by God, that this was something different. And that Jesus came to be a sacrifice. So the point of this title appears to introduce Jesus as a sacrifice. So therefore, we see that the manner of Jesus' ministry, since he was a sacrifice, and since it's very possible that he was the servant to which Isaiah was referring, that this was not just any human being, but this was one who came to sacrifice his life, to live a pure, perfect life, a humble life of servitude and of sacrifice. Why would this Jesus, the Word, the Creator, the light of the world, the true light that comes into the darkness, why would he come to die? That's still not answered. I mean, we know. If you've read the Scriptures, if you read the Gospels, then you have an idea. But imagine this is your first time. Maybe this is your first time hearing this. Why did Jesus come to die? Well, that's our next point. We heard the how that he came into ministry as a lamb, as a sacrificial, humble servant lamb. Now, why did he do that? John the Baptist continues. He says, this is the lamb of God, the purpose who takes away the sin of the world. That's why. To take away the sin of the world. Why? Because this is not the way things are supposed to be. Because there's a problem. There's corruption. Think about it. Even people who, who have no understanding of Jesus' gospel, of Jesus' message, agree. I mean, just think about the political world. Every political cycle, one coming up, one just passed, everybody is longing for some new leadership. Everyone's longing for somebody different just to get in there and make things right because things aren't right. There's division, there's hatred, there's racism, there's wasteful spending, there's greed, there's lust, all amongst our political leadership. And we just want to get somebody else in there. And then we get somebody else in there, and then what happens? And we want to get somebody else in there because it's never gotten right. And my prediction is it never will. Not without the Lord's intervening but what's all this got to do with sin some may ask see the problem is that sometimes people brush sin off because they think it's just something we make up as an act against God that it makes God angry and it's also a way that we can use to maybe control people uh, to use it as some way to, to dominate uh, to say that we have the word of God and, and, and you're disobeying him so you need to act this way that's what our culture thinks. That's what a lot of 
people I've talked to even think. And they feel that our sin doesn't affect anything else. That's why we have a culture that says stop preaching about morals or don't legislate morality. You can't legislate morality. Last time I looked, we weren't allowed to murder. Not allowed to steal. Can't lie under oath. Does that have anything to do with morality? Most of our laws are based on values that are founded in Scripture. And thank the Lord for that. What the Bible teaches is that God is the one that we offend when we sin, but every sin that is committed affects everything around us. It affects our relationship with God, yes, but it also affects our relationship within ourselves. It affects our relationship with one another. It affects our relationship with the earth, with the creation that, that we've been put in. And it causes corruption of all creation. The Bible teaches us that God created, created us, created this world with perfect shalom, true peace. But in the fall, that perfect shalom affected every single relationship. Sin is the disruption of that shalom. One quote I love from Cornelius Planiga as he calls sin, vandalism of shalom. I think that's a great image. I think about a few weeks ago when I came in here and was, was told by Stephanie that we had windows broken out of our doors here. You all saw that if you were here the last few weeks. We had boards up. We came in. After vandalism, we had to clean up glass all day. We had to cut wood. We had to board up windows. And then after that, it looked pretty crummy. It looked pretty crummy. Some tried to paint the boards, which was great, it was helpful. But there was a longing to see the restoration from the vandalism that happened. That's natural for us. We want to see things put right. And what's beautiful about this title is that Jesus was shown and introduced as the creator. And not only did he create the shalom, but he has come to restore all that's been broken by the vandalism of shalom that we inflicted. The Lamb of God is coming to take away the sin that we brought into this world. The corruption and the vandalism that we brought in. The crime, the sickness, all that we brought in. So we saw the how, what Jesus is doing. And we saw the why, why he is doing it. One thing I want to touch on, I said I was going to spend most of the time on 29, but also looking at how did John the Baptist know that Jesus was who he was? He says twice in, in, this, in, uh, in this chapter, I didn't know him. I didn't know him. Now, by the way, that does not mean that John didn't know Jesus at all. They were cousins. They, he knew Jesus, but he didn't realize who exactly Jesus was. That required revelation from God. 
He says in 31, I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John knew what he was talking about. John knew what the Lord was saying, and he was waiting. And when, and when he baptized Jesus, we saw that, see that in the other Gospels. The Spirit descended upon Christ. And the other Gospels record the voice of God saying, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. But we see that, that God said that the Spirit will rest on Jesus. This is more Isaiah language coming from the Spirit that rested on the Davidic king, the king that would follow David's line in chapter 11, the root of Jesse that, that, that by the way, grows out of parched ground that grows out of nothingness, out of dry ground. It's the servant of the Lord that Isaiah speaks of in, in Isaiah 42, the, the passage that Jesus quotes in Luke when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, when he announces in the temple, his, in, in the synagogue, his, um, his ministry. God gave John the sign so that he would be a witness that he would be that voice in the wilderness that he called him to be. John's witness, though, in Jesus' ministry, as we'll see, provide a model for us, provide a model for Jesus' followers. We see the how of Jesus' ministry. We see the why of Jesus' ministry. He's come to carry away the sin, to take away the corruption. Then we're, we're left with, so what? That was one of the biggest questions in our preaching classes. I get to use it now. So what? So what is that this is a model for Jesus' followers? Jesus' ministry and John's witness provide models for us as we go out and proclaim the word, proclaim and seek the restoration, seek our part in restoring and seeing restoration happen in the kingdom of God, in our community. Look at uh, what we see with John the Baptist, we see humility. John the Baptist was a willing servant of the Lord. When the Lord told him, this is what you do, he did it. And when Jesus came, John was, John was an all-star for a while. And when Jesus came, he said, I'm not even worthy to take his sandals off and wash the mud off his feet. That's really what that means. He said, I'm not even willing to be his servant. Or not, not worthy to be a servant. John understood who he was. He understood who Jesus was. And he understood the humility that he was to have in the presence of Jesus knowing that he was called by God. Also, we see obedience in John's life. We see the Lord calling John to baptize, and John went and baptized. And when John baptized Christ, he was a step back. When Christ came into the picture, he was a step back. He said, I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. And John was humble, but also John was obedient. And when John saw the good news, he proclaimed it. He says in verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son. Some manuscripts say the chosen one of God. But we have here in the ESV is the Son of God. It's like he's saying, I saw it with my own two eyes. This is very emphatic what he's saying. I'm telling you, this is the Son of God. This is the chosen one. And it's his witness that we're called to believe. 
The whole theme of John's gospel, as you'll hear throughout, is to believe. These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then after that, we don't stop. We move. We go. And we do what we are called to do. John came to reveal Christ to the world, to introduce the light and the darkness, to introduce this living water to the dry and parched land, to say, here he is. Believe him. Follow him. This is also the calling of Jesus' disciples. It's the calling of the church. It's our calling. Calling first is to believe, but then to move, then to act, to live in such a way that you believe that redemption is coming, that restoration is happening because the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world. A few places we see that. Romans, Paul says, strong are to help the weak. We're to be mindful of those who are underprivileged or those who, who are unable to do certain things or, or to pay for certain things. We, we are to be there for them, to care for them. Hebrews 13 says to, to, to give sacrifices of good works, sacrifices of praise and sacrifices of good works with such, good, with such sacrifices the Lord is pleased. Matthew 25, Jesus says, feed the hungry, visit the sick, visit the prisoner, proclaim the gospel of freedom. We're called to seek unity, to love one another as Christ loved the church and to proclaim the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we can walk outside in any direction in this community. We can walk outside and look any direction and experience the brokenness, the vandalism of the shalom that's corrupted this community. We can look at our homes. We can look at our families and notice the vandalism that's corrupted the shalom of our families, of our homes. We can look in this church and see the corruption that has vandalized the shalom of this church. Because things are not the way they were supposed to be. But Jesus came right in the midst of this. Jesus came right in the midst of the dry, parched land, of all the corruption, of all the vandalism. He came right there. This is what we're called to do. Because Jesus came into this as a shoot, the root of Jesse, to bring living water, to bring restoration. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be a sign of hope for the people of this community and for one another. We're called to demonstrate the way things ought to be. To introduce the one who takes away all that made it wrong. Does that mean we'll be perfect? No. That's why we confess our sins every single week. I try to remind ourselves of that. I try to remind myself of that. We're going to continue confessing our sins every week, brothers and sisters, because things aren't the way they're supposed to be but we practice forgiveness, we practice confession, we practice loving one another, and we practice knowing and having the hope that there is one who will one day bring complete restoration. One thing I didn't ask is how does Jesus take away the sin? How does he do it? Well, we saw this in Isaiah 53. It says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. All those sins that we confess every week, all those sins you confess every day or every night, whenever it is, all those things you feel guilty of, all those things you feel absolutely like nothing, 
because of what you've done? Those things have been laid upon the Lamb of God, and he takes away your sins. He takes away my sins because the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, and then he, as the Lamb of God, was sacrificed and brought to new life. St. Augustine says this, he takes away sin both by forgiving those things which we have done, by helping us not to do certain things, and by leading us to a life where such things cannot possibly be done. If we follow him, you see, he will lead us out of the wilderness. He'll take us out of the wilderness to the place of promise where things are exactly as they ought to be. Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope of one day being somewhere where things are the way they ought to be? That hope only happens in Christ. There is no other hope. It happens by the sacrificial Lamb of God. And then the Lamb of God that was introduced by John the Baptist, this humble servant of Isaiah 53, who came to sacrifice his life on the cross to destroy all that ought not to be, that same Lamb, that same Lamb who went to the altar of sacrifice will then be seen on the throne of glory. Listen to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice, no more in the wilderness, by the way. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. He goes on, and I, and, and I saw no temple in the city, for it is the temple of God the Almighty, and who? And the Lamb. It's the temple, is the Lord God and the Almighty, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its light is the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Isn't it amazing that John called him the Lamb of God, and maybe we didn't know exactly what he was talking about. It's because it's too big to be in one place. It's too big to narrow it down to one meaning. The sacrificial lamb is now the glorious lamb who is the light of the city. The one who is complete redemption and now reigning over all, and its gates will never be shut by day. They will bring into it glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This will be the place where things are as they ought to be. This is a picture of what things ought to be. Cancer is not the way it ought, it ought to be. Divorce is not the way it ought to be. Depression, death, sickness, anxiety is not the way it's supposed to be. Vandalism is not the way it's supposed to be. That's why the Lamb of God has come, that he would take away all of that, that he would one day take it away. 
and bring us to a place where things ought to be. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. We're called to see this good news, believe the good news, and to share this good news. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this good news. Thank you that you came to give yourself to be the sacrifice, but also the one who would restore all things and make them new. Thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away our sins and rules over the way things ought to be. Amen.